0: this week i'm beginning a new series and uh let me just begin instead of telling you what the new series is let me begin with a little a little question how many of you remember studying prepositions in english class back in elementary school can anybody remember prepositions back in english class let me let me read you a definition of a preposition for those of you who are scratching your head and kind of going i have a vague recollection of what a preposition is here's how dictionary.com defines preposition Any member of a class of words found in many languages that are used before nouns, pronouns, or other substantives to form phrases functioning as modifiers of verbs, nouns, or adjectives, and that typically express a spatial, temporal, or other relationship as in, on, by, to, or since. Did that help, you guys? Did that clarify everything just like that? For some of you, yes. Others of you are scratching your head. You're more confused than when I initially asked the question. So, if it wasn't helpful, that definition that is, let me give you some examples and see if that helps. The first example is this. We have a picture of a cat beside a box. The preposition is beside, right? And so it describes the cat's relationship to the box. He's beside the box. Next, we have a cat under a box, all right? Again, in this case, the cat's relationship to the box is that it is under the box. Next slide, we have a cat on a box again you're starting to get the idea on would be the preposition here there's a box the cat's on it and then finally we have a cat in a box right there for some reason he does not look particularly happy he looks like he is stuck but we have another picture that's as good (laughs) another cat in a box okay awesome so let me transition throughout the years theologians have taught about ways to describe our relationship with Christ, our relationship with Christ. Often they use the phrase union with Christ. They're trying to capture the biblical idea, the biblical concept that when we are born again, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as a result, we're given all the benefits of Jesus' perfect life, death, And resurrection. Now, here's where the preposition lesson and cat pictures come into play. The most common description in the Bible of a follower of Jesus is that she or he is a person in Christ, right? In Christ. The term Christian is actually only used three times in the Bible. Maybe you didn't know that. So, we we talk about Christians all the time, but the Bible didn't really use that term so much. However, the expressions in Christ, in the Lord, and in him occur 164 times in the letters of Paul alone, right? Not even like last week referring to Jesus, where Jesus talked about remain in me, remain in me, remain in me. They're an indispensable uh, sort of concept in terms of understanding the entire uh, Scripture, really, and our salvation. To be in Christ is to be organically united to Jesus as a limb is to the body or as a branch is connected to a tree. It's this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of his people. We are in Christ when we trust in him. Over the next five weeks, we're gonna be looking at five different benefits that the Bible says are granted to us because we're in Christ. Those five benefits are that in Christ we are righteous. We're gonna talk about that today. That we're redeemed, that we're restored, that we're reconciled, and to make it a fifth R that in Christ we are related. Before we jump into today's sermon, let's take a moment let's pray. Father, I thank you that your son Jesus came into the world to be a light, to reveal to us who you are, Father, that you are a good father who longs for his children to come home and has done everything, everything, in order for us to be made right with you. Father, we thank you that Jesus was a light, that Jesus shone that light uh, on our hearts and our minds and our lives to reveal to us our uh, rebellion, our brokenness, our sin. But Father, ultimately, I pray that this morning that what Jesus would reveal to us is that if we trust in Him in His work, in his life, his death and resurrection, that you will, you're faithful, to forgive us for our brokenness, our rebellion, our sin, and that you will gladly declare us righteous before your throne not because we have it all together, but rather because your son, Jesus, is our perfect substitute and sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Quick question. Uh, how many of you remember where you were on June the 17th, 1994? How many of you remember where you were June 17th, 1994? Before you answer that question, how many of you weren't alive on June 17th, 1994? Okay, quite a few of you. All right. In June of 1994, my Uncle Jerry took me on a fishing trip to Cabo San Lucas. We caught uh, Dorado, we caught striped marlin, we caught white marlin. It was absolutely fantastic. We flew from Atlanta into San Diego, and then from San Diego into Cabo San Lucas. But what's interesting is when we landed in San Diego, we got off the plane, and we noticed that there were people standing all over the airport with their eyes glued to television sets all over the airport. It was really strange. And so we sort of made our way to the, you know, the rear of some of these people standing and watching TV, and what we saw on every single television in the San Diego airport was a white Bronco driving through the streets of LA and then onto Interstate 5, right? So now do you remember where you were on June 17th, 1994? You're probably watching O.J. Simpson flee from the police. He was supposed to be arrested that day. He had offered to turn himself in but instead he climbed into this bronco and he began to on a uh, slow pace to drive away and try to escape from the police Uh, later on that evening he turned himself in after a long car chase that was televised and watched by over 95 million people many of whom were in the san diego airport his trial has been dubbed the trial of the century the trial of the century It began on January 25th, 1995. It lasted for 134 days, and they were all, all of those days were shown on television, and people tuned in day in, day out to watch the unfolding drama of the trial of the century. Everyone had opinions about OJ's guilt or his innocence, and just about everyone involved in the case became instantly famous. So Judge Lance Ito became famous, you might remember that name the prosecuting attorney Marsha Clark she became famous the defense team Robert Shapiro Johnny Cochran Alan Dershowitz and then Robert Kardashian yes that is the father of the Kardashian clan all of those people went from you know nobodies to being famous over the course of that 134 days and then on the final day of the trial when the verdict was to be read over 100 million people turned in to watch as OJ was acquitted of charges of murder against his wife nicole simpson and her friend ron goldman now i'm not here to make any statement about oj's guilt or his innocence but rather i just wanted to put before you this picture of a trial the trial of the century what's interesting is the bible uses any number of different metaphors to talk about how we have been forgiven because of jesus and one of the metaphors that scripture uses is this picture of a courtroom where, even though we are guilty, we are not only acquitted, but we're declared righteous. That courtroom language is at play in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39, and uh, just follow along with me, if you will, and then we'll delve into some of the ideas behind this courtroom language and our declaration of righteousness. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's the legal term. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The judge is on our side. Who shall separate us from the love of christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered not in all these things no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord what do we see in this passage lots and lots of different things we're going to look at two and the first thing we're going to look at very quickly is is this that apart from christ both our past and our present condemn us so if we are not in christ then our past and our present condemn us I'm going to read a section of Romans 3 and Romans 7. And I'm going to refer back to the passage we just read, Romans 8. In the section we just read, Paul asks three questions. They're really rhetorical. He says, Who can be against us? He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then finally, Who is to condemn? Clearly, Paul is addressing someone or something that seeks to condemn the children of God. If we look earlier at this letter of Romans, we see why that is. Listen to Romans 3. Romans 3 says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, or another way we might talk about in our world as religious people and irreligious people, are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 7, Paul says, beginning in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I think most of us can identify with Paul there. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I have this desire to do good things, to be the person that I long to be, but I see in my members or in my body another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a great passage of sort of being torn. I want to be a particular kind of man. I want to be a particular kind of woman. I want to be a particular type of husband or wife. I have that deep desire within me, but I keep failing. I keep doing what I don't want to do. We started this sermon today in Romans 8, where Paul seems to be taking a hopeful term following chapter 7. These preceding chapters however, have been pointing to a particular problem that we all face, which is our track record with sin and our track record with the law just doesn't look good for us. In Romans 1, Paul points out that we humans have a tendency to worship the good things that he has created instead of the one who created them. And whenever we do that, we break the very first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me but we make our wives our gods, we make our families our gods, we make work our gods, we make sports our gods, we make beauty our god, we make popularity our god, all of these things. And when we do that, when we make that the most important thing, we break the very first commandment. And then in chapter three, Paul makes it clear that both Jews and Gentiles, or again, religious and irreligious people, have failed to live up to those requirements of the law. All humans have fallen short of the righteousness that God requires except for one. And it's not just that we have failed in the past, we continue to fail over and over and over again. Paul makes that abundantly clear. That's what his point is in Romans 7. In verse 15, he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Our consciences condemn us, the law condemns us, our past condemns us, our present condemns us, It's no wonder that Paul exclaims in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He feels at a loss. He feels in despair. It would be very easy at this point to rattle off the typical list of big sins that might prove to be our downfall. Those could be sexual sins. They could be drunkenness. They could be stealing and slander and gossip. The list could go on and on. There's all these really obvious examples of sin that many of us have struggled with or struggle with still. There's no doubt about the fact that each of those absolutely, absolutely creates chaos and absolutely corrupts our lives and our relationships and the wider world. But for just a moment, let's go in a little bit of a more nuanced direction. Let's look at one of Tim Keller's definitions of sin. In his article, How to Talk About Sin in a Postmodern Age, he writes this, Sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and will enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. So sin is taking a good thing and making it into your most important thing, right? Physical fitness is a great thing, but it shouldn't be your most important thing. Work is a great thing, it shouldn't be your most important thing. Your wife, your husband your children your college degree all of those things are great great things but none of them should be your most important thing it's that same idea that we talked about last week Augustine's idea or concept of disordered loves your love should obviously be your family right but if you love your family more than God your family will become an idol you should definitely love baseball, but if baseball is the thing you love the most, then it becomes an idol, right? Your boyfriend is great, don't let him become an idol. Your job is great, don't let him become an idol. The list goes on and on and on. No created thing, children, spouse, sports, homework work, can bear the weight of divinity, right? God gave them to us as good things, but they cannot become an idol to us. And if they do, they create chaos, they enslave us. Another definition that Keller gives is found in another article, how sin makes us addicts. And I'm gonna read the little quote from that. The definition of sin is when you replace God with something or someone, and the result is an addiction of spirit. In other words, you become an addict. There's an attraction at the spiritual level every bit as powerful as sexual attraction at the physical level. You cannot produce your own meaning in life your own worth, your own security. Spiritually speaking, if it's not God who is the source of your meaning, then you're in bed with something else. It's a form of infidelity. In this definition of sin, Keller focuses on how when we place a good thing in the place of God, we become addicted to that thing. In the previous definition, he uses the word enslaved. In other words, if we worship something that God has created but not him, that thing will addict us it will enslave us our idols again exercise die at home beauty intelligence work safety security family will ultimately enslave us unless we love them in the right order not only will they enslave us they will destroy us and we'll actually destroy them they will like any idol demand total obedience at the expense of everything else even god and like all sin And all addiction, the result of any sin is chaos, isolation, and alienation, not only from God, but from all those people who we love the most. So, Romans makes it clear that we've got a problem with our record. Our past condemns us. We've all worshiped things that God created, right? We've also engaged in all those big sins we could talk about. Our present continues to condemn us, right? If we're honest with ourselves, all this stuff isn't just in the past. It was last night, right? It was this morning, right? Our present condemns us. Our past condemns us. And if we're trusting in our future performance, we're going to be in trouble there too. But there is good news. And the good news is this if you're in Christ, then God declares you righteous. And that declaration of righteousness is not just righteous in your past, righteous in your present, but it's even righteousness that extends all the way through your future let's look at a section of verses from Romans 8. And those whom he, that is God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's that legal term to declare righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, he is the judge. He has the right to pronounce the verdict. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So throughout this passage, and in particular verses 31 through 34, there's this metaphor of a courtroom in which we are being accused by the law. We're being accused by our consciences, and even though this passage doesn't mention it, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Satan, who is the accuser, levels charges against us as well. And as we just saw, many of those accusations are absolutely true, right? They are true. We have failed to keep the law. We have broken the law. We have worshiped and served created things, rather than the creator who gave us those good things. And if we have just the slightest shred of self-awareness, we know that this has been true, and it continues to be true, but there is hope. This passage makes it clear that because we are in Christ, we have been declared righteous. The Greek word translated justify in the verses I just read is dikaios. It's a legal term that means not only to acquit, Sort of That's sort of the negative pronouncement, you're not guilty, or declare somebody innocent, but even more, it's to declare someone righteous. So in other words, it's like saying, not only are you not guilty, you're great. We refer to this concept in theology as justification. I'm going to read a quick definition. It'll be on the screen. The doctrine of justification concerns God's gracious judicial verdict in advance of the day of judgment. This day of judgment has not yet occurred. Pronouncing guilty sinners who turn in self-despairing trust to jesus christ forgiven acquitted of all charges and declared morally upright in god's sight so in other words when you are in christ there is a guarantee that you not only have been but will be acquitted and declared righteous before god in the gospel god reveals his way of putting us right with himself jesus the son of god became our representative And our substitute as god's obedient servant jesus lived a righteous life he died an atoning death at the cross justification then is one of the key components of god's saving work it concerns a great exchange the swap where the sins of his people that's us are placed onto jesus account and he paid the debts of all those who will trust in him all those debts all your debts have been paid But that's not all. Not only did Jesus pay our bill, in justification, God gives us the righteousness of Christ's obedience in life and in death. What he earned was put into our account. Again, there was this great swap where our sin was placed on Jesus, his righteousness was placed on us, and God punished him in our place. Now, it would be logical for you to question whether or not the sacrifice of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, if that was enough to to pay for all of your sins. Let me use a quick analogy. Kristen and I both came from middle-class backgrounds. We're both uh, pretty frugal. One of us is cheap, the other's frugal. We've never owned a new car, we've never had a car payment, and I hope and pray that continues. We try to keep our expenses down whenever possible. We do eat out a little bit here and there. We don't have cable, we just really don't spend much money on anything. Like, it's sort of how we roll. Several years ago, the Eli Lilly Foundation gave Seven Hills Fellowship fifty thousand dollars for us to take our family on a three-month sabbatical. So fifteen thousand of that um, of those dollars went to the church for different church events, but that left the Pierce family thirty-five thousand dollars to spend on a trip for our family. And so on this sabbatical, we went to Costa Rica, we went to Turkey, we went to Israel, Greece, Italy, Switzerland, France, and then after that, I went to Seattle to hang out with my long-term accountability group. And so while we were in Costa Rica and while we were in Europe, we lived like kings. We stayed in great places. We ate whatever we wanted. We saw all the sights. And really, most of our spending occurred in Europe. And after all was said and done, we spent a little bit less than the allotted $35,000. So if you prorated that amount over the course of a year, just for the sake of simplicity, we, spent, we would have been spending about $350,000 a year to live that kind of lifestyle, right? Right? Depending on what kind of family you're from, that might seem like a lot. Uh, For other people, maybe not so much. To put it in perspective, the richest person in the world right now is Jeff Bezos, the owner and founder of Amazon. He is currently worth 188 billion with a B dollars. Just for those of you who aren't math people, that is a lot. If Jeff Bezos called me up on the phone after church today and said, hey, BP, I want you and Krista to have full access to all of my wealth, to all of my bank accounts, and I want you to live life like you're always on sabbatical. Like, that's just my gift to you. If, if Chris and I took him up on that, it would take roughly 550,000 years of living for us to spend all of his wealth. In other words, it would be impossible. Not just virtually impossible, it would be really impossible. In justification, Jesus' righteous record is attributed to you and to me, to our account, if you will. And though I'm not exactly sure how to convert Jesus' righteousness to dollars, it is undoubtedly greater than Jeff Bezos' $188 billion. All you need to know is that because you are in Christ, God looks at you and he sees his son's extravagant record on your account, and he declares you righteous past, present, and future. Right? All of your sins have been wiped away. All of Jesus' righteousness has been attributed to your account, and God declares you righteous, past, present, and even future. And because he's the judge, nothing can change that. That's why Paul could say, what then shall we say to these things? Who are we to argue with God? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer, of course, is no one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because we are in him for good, for all time, permanently.